0: This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here.
1: Welcome to The Feed News Magazine. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, the mental health crisis in our schools, TikTok concerns, and the still desperate need for blood donors. But we begin with the new economic drivers, women. There is a job phenomenon that is taking the work world by storm here in Canada. It's called a she-covery, as more and more women are entering the workforce post-pandemic. Move over manpower, make room for the labour ladies. Here with the she-covery details is Claudia DeSanti, Senior Manager, Policy, Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to The Feed, Claudia. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, Anne. It's good to be here.
1: So what exactly is a she-covery?
2: So the she recovery refers to the economic recovery of women. And in this case, we're talking about recovery from job losses that we saw during COVID-19. If I can take you back to the first month of the pandemic for a minute, it's March 2020, and in Ontario we saw nearly half a million jobs uh, were lost, and more than half of those were women. Um, And I should note, not all women felt this equally. We saw the biggest impacts among racialized and indigenous women, immigrant women, single mothers in particular, um, so there was a disproportionate burden. And what we're seeing now is a big bounce back in terms of job numbers. Women are well above pre-pandemic levels. Um and so they're re-entering the labor market, and that's very good news um, because you know, from a women's economic, Uh, empowerment perspective and from a household finance perspective, women need to be in the workforce. Um, So there's good news there. And this is something that the Ontario Chamber of Commerce has been advocating for since the start of the pandemic, together with local chambers of commerce. I know we're calling in from York Region here, so the chambers in Richmond Hill and Newmarket and Vaughan, we've all been amplifying the message that there needs to be policies and efforts among employers to
1: bring women back. And let's go back to that time, March 2020, when the pandemic was first declared March 11th. So you mentioned job loss and it was extraordinarily difficult for so many people, but you also mentioned the majority were women. Why were women impacted at the beginning and through the pandemic? What was the issue that caused them to either lose their jobs or feel they had to step away from those jobs?
2: There were two main reasons that uh, women were disproportionately impacted. The first is uh, the types of jobs that women tend to hold, predominantly sectors uh, that are very face-to-face. So you think about retail, restaurants, hotels, hair salons, most of those jobs are held by women, and those jobs had to, you know, uh, close their doors to prevent transmission of the virus. So it's partly the structure of the, the workforce that we have. But the second biggest reason is a policy one, and it's childcare. Parents had to stay home uh, to to be with their kids when schools and daycares closed. And we know that the vast majority of home care and childcare work falls on the shoulders of women. So many women had to either leave their jobs or cut back on their working hours in order to take on that extra work. Um, and that's something that's also picked back up with uh, some policy changes that we've seen from the provincial and federal governments to increase access to child care post-pandemic.
1: And you know, the burden that you speak about when it comes to child care, and it's, most people don't see it as a burden, but that's how it's being expressed. But you add to that household tasks, elder care, and everything else that women seem to have to handle, typically in a household, are those still challenges for women who are entering or re-entering the workforce today?
2: It's a major challenge and it's not something that you can see when you just look at the job numbers because women might be employed but they're still doing that child care elderly care home care work in addition to their full-time or part time jobs Um, and so if you speak to working women they will tell you that uh, those underlying challenges are still there if anything it's just more of a challenge to juggle them um, so this is a bigger systemic issue that we've been looking at how we can work with employers to fix in terms of shifting the culture around, um, you know, sharing the burden at home, uh, creating flexible work policies among employers. So parents of of you know both men and women and all workers can take time to take care of. Uh, home tasks, um, parental leave policies. Those are the types of things that can make it easier for people to juggle personal and work life. And I think something that we did see during the pandemic, as everyone was working from home, was we could see people's living rooms in the background of their Zoom screen. So it became impossible to ignore that you know people have lives, workers have lives, and we need to find a way as a society to make sure that they can do both of those things, and especially women, because they do tend to
1: take most of that work on. So flexible work policies. Now, Claudia, you've been quoted as saying flexible work is a double-edged sword. What do you mean by that?
3: Flexible
2: work overall is a great policy uh, initiative that employers can take to allow, as I said, you know, both men and women in the workforce to um, accommodate their their workforce uh, and personal lives. The challenge, though, is that often. Um, in very male-dominant sectors like technology or, or you know, law firms, it can be seen as an accommodation for women in particular. And so it can actually hold them back because they're seen as needing more support, more accommodation. There's a culture in some of these industries that the more you work, the longer hours, the more you should be rewarded. Um, and so it's not enough for employers to just implement Uh, you know, flexible work. You can work from home on Sundays. You have to also change the culture so that people feel comfortable taking it without being penalized.
1: What do you and the OCC think and believe is the best route for the governments either level and even municipal if they have some bearing on this, but definitely provincial and federal, what can they do to help women get into and stay in the workforce?
2: That's a great point about staying into retention is now what we're seeing the big challenge um, because, you know, we see a lot of employers take these initiatives to attract more women. The Skilled trades is a great example. Lots of construction um, alliances and, and unions and government are working to bring more women into the skilled trades, but then you see them leave. And the big reason behind that is child care. Uh, it's in, really impossible to overstate how important it is to make childcare more affordable and accessible. Um, which means increasing the number of spaces in addition to lowering the cost. So I would put childcare as number one. Um, but the second thing is increasing women's uh, representation in leadership positions uh, because currently less than one-third of all management roles are occupied by women. Uh, you know, if you look at the list of 100 top executives in Canada, there are more uh, people named Paul or Brian than there are women. <laughs> so there's no gender parity in leadership, and that means that all of the workforce policies are going to be dictated by men, frankly, and they won't be um, what women need to succeed. So the two biggest things, and that's not specifically a government uh, policy action, but there is a role for government to encourage more of that representation. Um, And there's something called the 50-30 challenge that, Uh, the Government of Canada launched to encourage employers to increase gender parity to 50% on boards and senior management and then 30% other equity-deserving groups. Um, So those are the types of initiatives that Employers and government can work together on, in addition
1: to childcare. The employment rate of women in their prime working years, so that would be about 25 to 54 years of age, that's reached record highs. Where are women headed when it comes to jobs? What are the jobs that they are taking and assuming at this point?
2: There's been a shift in the sectors that women are represented in um, pre-pandemic. It, as I mentioned, it was disproportionate in some of the tourism um, and retail industries, but many of those women have retrained. Um, they took the pandemic to actually uh, go back to school and do some training um, and develop skills that could bring them into you know, technology jobs and engineering and, and science. Um, so those are great opportunities because they do tend to, pay higher and there's a lot of demand for them, Um, you know, digital and data skills are the future for many, many jobs. So we saw lots of micro-credentials and and retraining. Um, There's an overall shift in that direction. But that is a challenge for those industries like tourism that still need workers. Um, So this is, you know, maybe good news for people that have been able to retrain, but we also need strategies for sectors like tourism and retail to make sure that they have the labor they need
1: why is it important to keep women in the labor force i understand that it's being called an economic necessity now and in the future why is their presence so important
2: well we need all the workers we can get um 87% of employers are facing job vacancies right now they their labor shortages are bigger than they've ever seen before. So we need all the talent that we have in, in this country and new talent, immigration, um, everyone needs to be working. But also just from a, a moral perspective, it's been decades of women being underrepresented and that's impacted their you know financial independence, um, their ability to uh, dictate their own lives. They've often in many households uh, not had a choice and they've had to stay home. Um, and it's important as a society that those opportunities are available uh, to anyone that wants them. And there's nothing wrong with someone choosing to stay home, but often it's, it's not a choice. It's um, an obligation because of childcare responsibilities and a lack of upward mobility um, in the workforce. Uh, so, it's important for women uh, individually, but it is important for the economy as a whole so that we can be as productive and competitive as possible.
1: You know, our station, 1059 the region, is ostensibly a music station. So, what comes to mind right now is the song, She Works Hard for the Money. Are we talking about pay equity or inequities at this point for women?
2: Pay equity is a longstanding conversation and a very important one that we've been engaged in as a chamber network. It's a big part of um, the challenge here and the solution. Um, th- there's a lot that government has uh, an opportunity to do here to empower uh, employers to improve pay equity. There's, the pay equity office is something that exists, but it doesn't have all the resources um, that it needs to help industry develop those benchmarks and strategies. Um, the federal government has what's called a what works toolkit to help employers with things like pay equity um, and, and just kind of measuring because that's the first step is understanding that what that inequity might look like in your own workplace. So we've been really pushing for government to um, consult with businesses, understand what they need um, and how we can improve transparency and pay equity within different sectors. Uh, and, and the challenge is that, often it's not intentional right there's not sometimes it is there's a lot of discrimination but often Employers don't have the tools and they don't know necessarily um, how to measure and how to make those changes. So, there, there needs to be a concerted effort with nonprofits and government and businesses to um, get the information and the strategies that we need to resolve that pay inequity.
1: Hmm. Well, it appears that the she recovery is well underway. I am Woman Hear Me Roar. Claudia DeSanti, Senior Manager Policy, Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Anne. Also, with Money Matters, a visit to the grocery store is now costing you more. Jim Lang with one chain that is seeing a surge in customers.
4: Without question, saving money while you shop for groceries has become a number one priority for all Canadians in 2023. And there's a company in Durham region, New York region, doing something to help. And it's called Grocery Outlet. Thrilled to be joined by their co-owner, Carolyn Boyani, today on the feed. Carolyn, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Well, thanks I, so much. Well, it's an absolute pleasure, and it's funny. Wherever I go, whoever I talk to, whether it's friends or acquaintances or coworkers, the one number one topic that comes out is, "Did you save money at the grocery store? Did you see that sale because of the food insecurity and the inflation at the grocery store?" I mean, everyone I know, everyone is trying to save money when they buy food. Absolutely. Now, and now, because of that, when you Think about the concept of grocery outlet. Are you finding that by word of mouth or by TikTok, the, the TikTok video that went viral, how is grocery outlet growing and the word getting out that people can save money by going to your stores?
5: Well, we did have a TikTok go viral recently a few weeks back and that has really enlightened a lot of people to who we are. And it caused other people to do TikToks and visit our stores. It caused blogs to write about us and we were on CP24. So It's definitely brought a lot more attention to our company. We've been around for 25 years, so we've always had a a great, loyal um, fan base and people who've been shopping with, with us for a really long time. We've definitely seen a lot of new faces because people, everybody, as you said, everyone's looking to save money right now.
4: And it's funny that you brought that up, Carolyn, that you've been around for 25 years, but all of a sudden in the last year or so, uh, I know our family. Our eyes have been open to it because you have that grocery outlet location on Davis Drive in Newmarket, not far from where we live. And wherever you are in, in Durham region, or Peel region, or York region, or Toronto, people are getting, "Hey, have you heard about gro- gro- grocery outlet? Because it, it's a good way to complement your grocery shopping and save money."
5: Absolutely, we've always thought we were one of the best kept secrets in uh, in Durham region and and um, Ontario in general. And we're, we're really thrilled. We're thrilled that we've gotten so much more attention and so many more people are coming into our stores. It enables us to buy better deals and be able to help people really save money on their day-to-day groceries, which everybody is struggling right now.
4: You've obviously been in the business for a long time, but or even you for someone in the business every day for the last quarter century shocked at some of the prices you see, Carolyn?
5: I am <laughs> completely blown away. When I go to the grocery store, I also see a lot of TikToks and things of people shopping and how much fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, you know, raw proteins and things, everything is so expensive. I cannot believe how much, I've never seen an acceleration like this and the cost of things in all of our years doing this. It's it's absolutely crazy. And I think that that's why people who, you know, maybe said, I'll shop at, you know, one of the more expensive whole foods or something like that, and now they're kind of like, I can't really, <laughs> you know, it's 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 just mm-hmm. unfeasible, it's too expensive. So they're really looking for other alternatives because they're looking for quality food products, but they just, you know, they're, they're, they just don't want to spend the money that they used to spend on groceries. And, and we things sh- were less expensive as well.
4: Yeah. I mean, I, I know uh, for my friends and I, the one thing we point out is when did butter and bread become so expensive? It's shocking to us.
5: <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yeah. I feel the exact same. <laughs> Trust me.
4: Uh, speaking to Carolyn Boyani, the co-owner of the grocery outlet located in York region, Durham region, and, uh, you can save some money. The one thing you should know about grocery outlet when you go, they don't have the same products all the time. So every few weeks there's a changeover and there's some things that you may be looking for or not there, but then the next time you go, there's things that you never heard of or you were looking for all of a sudden they arrive.
5: Absolutely. We always tell people shop us often. Our stock changes all the time. We literally get hundreds of new items in every week. And because we're a deal, we only buy deals. We only buy things that are great, you know, great prices for our customers. Our stock changes all the time. So we always tell people, you're not going to find every single thing you want every time you come in because our stock does change so much. But come and shop with us first. You will definitely find things that you're happy with. You will save money. And then you can fill in the rest of your grocery store at a regular grocery shop.
4: So are there tips, Carolyn, that people can use, whether they're going to grocery outlet or other stores, to save money that maybe they're they're missing and ended up spending more than they should?
5: Well, I think people, you know, that you can certainly, there's coupons and there's things like that, Um, but definitely being open-minded to looking at other alternative um, options for buying groceries, such as a company like our own, where you can come in, you can save, we say 30 to 70% is a general guideline, sometimes it's more than that, it depends on how much product we bought and what the date is on it, Uh, come, come into a store like ours. Um, have a look, see what's available. Pick up the things that you're happy with, and then you can fill in the rest with uh, at a regular grocery store. But definitely, the discount banners like your WalMarts and, and No Frills are going to be great places to shop instead of the higher-priced, um, you know, type stores.
4: I, it, it's funny the power of social media. Um, when that TikTok video came out, all of a sudden it was the grocery outlet was the big topic of conversation kind of went viral on social media. I'm like, wait a sec, I know about grocery outlet and all of a sudden it's become, it's become a hip thing. Because So this is, were you even surprised at the response from the TikTok video?
5: We were absolutely shocked. Honestly, we had ne- never experienced anything like that um, to have that level of interest in our company. I mean, we're extremely thrilled. We're proud and happy that people are, are able to, we're able to offer something of value to people where people are coming in. They're happy. They're saving money. Um, and, yeah, it brought a level of exposure to our company that we've never seen before. So,
4: yeah, we're nothing but thrilled about it. You know what I do like about Grocery Outlet in the frozen food section? If you're having a gathering over the holidays or friends or whatnot, you can buy a big bag of, like, frozen onion rings or chicken fingers or fries, and basically you're taken care of. And I, I do like that.
5: Yeah, absolutely. We offer, I think, really good value and things that you can take and keep in the freezer Pop them out, bake some cookies fresh, bake some croissants or chicken strips, throw them in your air fryer. It's an easy way to have ready-to-go foods that are relatively inexpensive, and uh, it gives you great um, variety and assortment for you to you know, use throughout your week or two.
4: Oh, Caroline, i got to tell you, my wife and I, we become game changers to air fryer. We had heard about it, we got it, like, why did we not get an air fryer before? Because it's awesome with frozen food.
5: Oh, it's absolutely phenomenal. We are starting to include air fryer directions on a lot of our frozen products that we carry because we know I use mine every single day. <laughs> and like most people do. It's become such a huge, it's just such an easy way to cook things. It cooks everything really beautifully. So, yeah, it's absolutely, it's, it's a worthwhile investment for sure
4: to look for the location near you, go to thegroceryoutlet.ca. You can find the locations, whether it's Davis Drive and Newmarket or Durham region. Uh, with the popularity now, is there any plans to expand the Grocery Outlet? Uh, we're always looking
5: for new opportunities. We have 12 locations currently. Um, you know, never say never. We get a lot of requests to open all over the place. And um, we're definitely open to the right opportunities when it
4: comes along. How did you get into the food business in the first place? You've been doing it 25 years.
5: Well, we were actually, we modeled our initial store on uh, the grocery and bakery outlets that we saw in the United States. We saw there was a, there's, there's a, a large amount of um, specialty retailers that, that do what we do, carry manufacturers, overrun seconds, liquidations, close to code, things like that. And we, we visited many of them. We, they were always busy and we said, but there's nothing like this here in Canada. Why can't, why don't we start something where we can do the same type of thing, but for people in our area and that's kind of where the idea originated from
4: well I guess after all the years of hard work there has to be a sense of pride from you and your staff to see where grocery outlet has come and and how it's being perceived in the media and social media
5: yeah we are we are so thrilled we have we're so fortunate as a company we have the best team we have people who've been with us for years and years and years and everyone is so happy and proud of the work that we're doing in our stores. And honestly, we we could we would be absolutely lost without our teams. Our, we have the best people in the world <laughs> working with us. So we're very fortunate.
4: Well, Carolyn, thank you to you and your staff because you're saving a lot of people listening in York region and Durham region a lot of money at the grocery store. And right now, that is not an easy thing to do. Uh, continued success with the grocery outlet. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us in the feed.
1: Thank you so much. We hope to see you again soon. Coming up next, the mental health crisis in our schools. We'll be right back.
0: Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
1: Welcome back to the feed. People for Education released its annual Ontario School Survey this past week, and the findings are troubling. According to the report, mental health supports are needed for both students and staff in more than 90% of schools in this province, and the number of schools with no access to a psychologist has doubled in the past decade. The phrase downward spiral is now being used in the survey to describe the situation as young Canadians are reporting declining mental health. Here to help us better understand the mental health challenges faced by our children and their educators is Annie Kidder, Executive Director of People for Education. Annie, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So describe this survey. How was it conducted? Who was asked? And and there are principles that are, are involved in this as well.
6: Yes, yeah, so this survey is the annual Ontario School Survey. It goes to all the schools in the province every year um, and it goes to principals. So it is principals who respond to it. And this year, 1,044 principals, so schools, uh, participated. They're from all areas of the province and all school boards.
1: Pretty shocking. 91% of schools need mental health support from psychologists, social workers, and other specialists, but they're not getting it. What's the problem?
6: Well, I think that, you know, this is the one time where we can say this is not a problem of let's just throw more money at this issue. I think it's a, it's a slightly complex problem, but it has to do with that uh, we don't necessarily have a good overall plan. Um, we don't have a structure where education and health is working together well so that when there are not the staff available connected to education, that it's easy to get them from public health or from community health organizations. Um, but, and it's also the pandemic, like we can't deny that the pandemic has had an impact. And and what principals told us is that they were worried that people were thinking things were, quote unquote, back to normal. Mm-hmm. And principals are saying things are not back to normal and that the pandemic has had a huge impact on students' Uh, on their mental health, on their sense of well-being, on their behaviour, on their capacity for sort of regulating their their actions, um, and that that more support is definitely needed.
1: Annie, what are the signs and symptoms of mental health issues among our students and even our staff here in Ontario? Uh-huh.
6: That's such a great and very hard question. And I am not a a mental health expert. And I always worry when we talk about mental health, we're really actually talking about mental illness. Um, When we're talking about health, a, healthy, a mentally healthy person uh, is able to understand their own feelings, manage their feelings, interact with other human beings, know when they actually do need help. Uh, they are able to be uh, resilient in, in times when there's a lot of stress, and they're able to manage uh, a kind of changing world. When when your mental health is uh, when you're struggling to stay mentally healthy, uh, then then we have the opposite of that. We all, we have then a difficulty with um, with behavior, for example, because you're kind of acting out on your feelings, or difficulty because you're feeling really bad or you're feeling really anxious, and it makes you angry, so you you can't uh, you know control what you're doing, and in some cases. Um, there there is actually the beginnings of mental illness which schools definitely are not the place to treat and that's when you're really really struggling to cope when there's you know severe depression or severe anxiety that's making it actually very difficult to function uh, in a school setting. And what's hard, I think, right now is that um, because so many people, adults too, but the evidence is very strong, that so many young people are struggling um, to feel well, um, that the system itself becomes overwhelmed. It's not set up to deal with uh, such a large issue. number of kids who are struggling. And the evidence is there from the outside. We've seen, you know, um, CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, uh, Toronto Public Health, Statistics Canada, the American Center for Disease Control, all, you know, and many others saying we are very concerned about the mental health of young people right now. In in great part because of the impact of the pandemic.
1: You know, a grade nine teacher here in this province is quoted as saying, "You can't teach kids algebra when they feel their whole world is crumbling."
6: Yeah, but I and I think I think it's a very good point. And but then but. The but in that is there is some system change that's needed because what we we should be doing more of, and not just by adding more things to the curriculum or to the job of teachers and support staff, but we have to recognize that, yes, you cannot teach algebra to a kid who thinks the whole world is crumbling, but how do we make sure from the get-go in early childhood education all the way up through that we see mental health skills as teachable, learnable skills. Mm. You know, we talk about social-emotional skills or social-emotional learning, but you can't just keep adding more to the curriculum. It has to be taken seriously early on, and it, that is a way of preventing, and there's lots of evidence to say, say this is true, um, there, it's not a way of preventing all mental illness, but it's a way of preventing some of it. So how do we build those skills early on so that when things are hard... Uh, you know, kids don't go off the rails. Sorry, that's a, you know not, the, I'm sure, the right way to talk about it. But but that's an important part of it, too. So, so that schools aren't a place where we're just dealing with emergencies. We're really understanding we need to be doing more or, or have a different focus early on so that we're building capacity in kids.
1: And it's not just students that we're talking about, at least through this survey. It's staff as well, educators as well are struggling with their mental health. Well, you know, I would argue
6: that we all are a little bit. I mean, (laughs) I found the pandemic really hard to deal with at points. Um, So it's had a big impact on all of us, for one thing then it, if you're an educator or some support staff person working in a school you're suddenly in a land and they have been in this land for for nearly 3 years now where you're ha- you're having to be uh, a health expert you're having to deal with what are the rules around covid how am i talking about this how am i supporting young people who are dealing with suddenly this big emergency How am I working sometimes online, sometimes not online? Um, So the the level of stress has been incredibly high in schools for all of the people who work in schools. And what, you know, one of the principals described this kind of downward spiral where you've got kids with way higher needs. You've got staff who are already stressed. Then they get too stressed. Then they have to take leave because of their own mental health and well-being. Uh, Then there's fewer staff then staff become even more stressed. Uh, kids, you know, do worse. And that's the the downward spiral in this way. And, and we do have to pay, you know, teachers and support staff, education assistants, counselors, all the people working in schools are dealing with really a lot. Um, and we have to be paying attention to that.
1: Why is it, the responsibility of the education system here in Ontario to try to deal with these problems. It, it's its understood that a student and an educator would spend, what, about a third of, of their day, each day, five days a week, uh, in in class, in school. But why does it fall on the shoulders of the education system to try to deal with this?
6: Well, that's another great question. and And it actually shouldn't completely... And then there's a big but in this. I think it is really important that health and education are working together on this. But what we can't do is add to the job of principals mostly to say you have to figure out how to work with community health agencies or with other supports that exist around you. So there needs to be more... Uh, more structure, better support for that integration, because it is not the job, and especially it's not the job of schools to be, you know, treating mental illness, and it's beyond the capacity of schools to do anything more than what I've suggested, which is how do we build these skills early on in kids? That is part of the job of schools, and it's part of the job of all of us to take mental health seriously. It's health, just as we're supposed to exercise for our physical health, uh, we need to take care of our mental health. But what's needed then, and that's why we've been calling for a health and education task force, we need to understand from all the people with expertise and experience on the ground, um, and and from students, to understand what other structural things need to be in place. Because again, just spending more money is not going to do the trick. How do we make it easier? Um, If a kid, uh, you know, if I'm a, a teacher and I've got a kid in grade nine and I can see that kid needs some help, um, how 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 have we ensured that that help is available either outside the school or by staff from health coming into the school? And that's where the the, the structural change needs to happen.
1: So, in other words, don't just throw money at the problem. Make sure that there's strategy behind it. Make
6: sure there's strategy behind it, and that you've actually thought through of the strategy first. So you've act- and you, ha- and it has to be thought of in an integrated way. It has to be health and education working together, uh, not just education or even just trying to add more staff to education.
1: Interesting. I invited uh, the Education Minister, Stephen Lecce, to join us in this interview, and he declined, uh, but he gave a statement, and I'll read a part of it to you, Annie. Since day one, our government has increased funding in mental health now by over 400%, along with a 9% increase in regulated mental health professionals in the last two years alone. Our government has funded the hiring of 7,000 additional education workers in our schools to better meet the needs of Ontario's students including the hiring of more social workers and child and youth workers what's your response to this
6: well it's true you know so that i think that it is important to go people people have been paying attention to this and trying to ensure that there's more staff and in some cases principals told us and the principals council said in fact there's money for mental health specialists Uh, but there aren't any mental health specialists. So you can decide to, you know, again, you know, funnel money down, but you have to make sure that the staff are there. And I think that the problem that we are seeing, and we have definitely been seeing since the beginning of the pandemic, is the lack of a comprehensive plan or a kind of coordinated approach. And again, that's why we've been calling for the convening of a health and education task force, because you need to actually get everybody at the table who under, then goes, oh, I didn't realize it worked this way at that level, um, to start to come up with solutions. So what, what we do, don't need to happen is, is any more bits and pieces of money or band-aids. What we do need as a longer term, more coherent uh, set of policies and then funding to go with them um, that are actually going to create something that, that we can rely on. And again, so that staff or students know where they can go and know that they're, you know, that somebody has thought this through at kind of all levels.
1: So in a nutshell, what is your greatest takeaway from this year's Ontario school survey?
6: I think that the kids are not all right. That is my biggest takeaway and the thing I think that we should all be worried about. This is our our next generation uh, and we should really care about the fact that they, they definitely are not all right.
1: Annie Kidder, Executive Director of People for Education, thank you so much for giving us your time here on the feed. Much appreciated.
6: Thank you so much, Anne. It's very nice to talk to you.
1: Next, how Canadian Blood Services could really use your help. Tina Cortez with the desperate need for donors. This is the
7: first weekend of March, and winter weather warnings and watches have continued to have an impact on schools, workplaces, and travel, Winter weather is also impacting blood collections in this province. With the details, Andrew McCartney from Canadian Blood Services. Andrew, welcome back to the feed.
3: Well, thank you so much, Tina. And yes, um, like you said, unfortunately, winter is not done with us yet.
7: So let's focus in on that. How has winter weather wiped out the opportunity to collect blood?
3: Well, that's right. With all of the heavy snowfall and icy conditions and extreme cold, unfortunately... Uh, we have seen a decrease in blood collections here in the York region and really all across Ontario. Um, obviously, with the with snowfall and, and the cold, people tend to like to shutter up a little bit and, and stay home, uh, which has seen an increase in appointment cancellations. Um, so we're just here today talking about, you know, hopefully people getting back out there as, as, the, as, the, ro- as the roads clear and uh, make another appointment.
7: Are there donations and specific blood types of particular concern or need?
3: Well, I would say that all blood types are needed at all times. There is always a specific need for O negative. That is the universal blood type. So um, if, for example, someone is to get into a serious car accident or potentially a construction site um, injury, that would be used in any sort of extreme Situation. So if we don't have, to, if the hospital doesn't have time to test your blood, they will just immediately give you O negative. So anyone out there listening that is um, an O negative donor, we always encourage you to donate as much as possible.
7: Would Canadian Blood Services characterize this situation as critical?
3: Well, right now, what we're seeing is actually quite typical um, in most winter events across the GTA, and really in Canada for that matter, um, maybe not this far into, into March. Um, weather does obviously make it difficult to travel at times, and, and we do see a dip in collections. Uh, but thankfully, Canadian Blood Services is, is a national blood inventory, and thanks to donors, patients needs um will continue to be met where and when they need them um but what i really want to share with the listener your listeners today is that the need is constant and there is a um a shelf life of 42 days for blood products so really no matter how much inventory we may or may not have we're always thinking about kind of that 42 days ahead of time and um just really want everyone to understand that the the need for blood is constant
7: And what does the current situation mean for those waiting for surgeries or transfusions?
3: So, as I mentioned, we are a national blood inventory. So, if there is a situation, if the situation ever does arise where there are serious um, storms across Ontario, for example, we are able to, you know, collect units from collect blood, blood donations from other provinces if that were ever to arise. But that is. Definitely not an ideal situation. Um, that's just why we're kind of getting on the airways right now, just to raise the alarm a little bit. Um, you know, for anyone who may have had an appointment this past week and, and the, the winter storms kept them home, just to think about rebooking back into this week coming up. We're open five days a week at Hellcrest Mall. Um, so we'd just love to see those appointments get back up again.
7: Andrew, walk us through the process. What does donating actually involve?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So depending um, on whether or not you're a first-time donor, uh, we always encourage you to bring your ID in with you. Um, We'll get you checked in. You'll do a a questionnaire uh, that will just go through a little bit about your health history and your medical history and your travel history. Then we will check your iron to make sure that your um, iron levels are good enough. We're always making sure that um, your health is is of the utmost importance. So we're not going to let you donate if if your iron levels are too low, um, and once all of that is done, you'll you'll go to our beds, and one of our lovely staff will help you through the process. And and um, if you are ever nervous about that, we always encourage you to just let the staff member know as well, and they'll do everything that they can in in their power to make it more comfortable for you. And uh, of course, once you're done your donation, we have our lovely refreshment area with our. Volunteers who are there to uh, look after you and and offer you some snacks, cookies, juices, whatever you'd like.
7: Does does our listening audience? Do they have to book an appointment to donate?
3: Yes. So we are at an appointment only um, right now. So there are many ways you can do that. One, go on blood.ca. You can literally type in your address; it'll show you your closest um, clinic close to you. You can download our app, Give Blood. Or call our hotline one eight 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 to donate. Like I said, we have a donor center open five days a week at Hillcrest Mall. We also have other mobile events really across York Region, um, in Thornhill, Markham, up in Newmarket, Keswick, East Willimantic. So lots of opportunity to donate. Um, encourage everyone to check out our website.
7: Andrew, thank you for your time today.
3: Thanks, thanks so much, Tina.
1: Coming up on the feed, the chatter about TikTok.
0: Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region, Ann Romer, and more of The Feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region.
1: Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The Feds recently banned the TikTok platform from government devices. Kevin Frankish now with the security concerns.
0: Effective, immediately anyone with a government work phone will no longer be able to use it to access TikTok. A recent review by Canada's Chief Information Officer found that TikTok's data collection methods could lead to cyber attacks. Richard Lachlan is an associate professor at Toronto Metropolitan University and an expert on privacy and social media. Hello, Professor Lachlan.
8: Hey, how are you doing?
0: I am well. There has been so much talk about TikTok. Do you think that, that all of these fears are grounded in fact?
8: So I, I do think of course there's, there's a conversation going on. I mean, it was happening when Donald Trump was trying to ban uh, TikTok from being in the US. Um, but it's also in the context of us understanding more about cybersecurity, understanding more about social media and tracking on our devices in general. So both of those are happening at the same time. Some of the question is, is TikTok worse in terms of tracking and other social media applications. But the, the other part of this is TikTok is based in China. And with the geopolitical situation right now, we are much more concerned with, um, with ca- cases of Chinese surveillance. So it's happening in the context of the spy balloon right now, worsening conditions in, in between Canada and, and China, and the US and China. So yes, all of these are going on at the same time. And we, we have to try and distill out what's really about security and what's really about political theater.
0: Do we need to be concerned about Facebook and and Twitter in the same context? Or because they're not based in China, we don't have the the same concerns?
8: Right. So so I would definitely say from a security point of view, from a cybersecurity point of view, work phones for government and certainly secure government employees who maybe deal with sensitive material should not have social media applications on them. Uh, and, And this is not that... You know we're worried that Meta is necessarily spying on the Canadian government at all. It's more the case that um, people, most of the, uh, most of the security problems we have are based on human error. Someone we're using a password, copying something back and forth and not being aware of this. So really, if something's possibly going to have sensitive emails on it, if someone's going to be using this to maybe review files when they're on the go, but you really want to make sure that that device is a secure device. Uh, I, I don't think this is a concern for many, you know, every employee, but there's certainly a category of employees where any social media application, it, it shouldn't be the use of that device. We use our mobile phones as general purpose, entertainment, and work. That's probably a mistake from a security point of view. And in many countries around the world, that that is what people do. They'll have multiple phones. They'll have a work phone that maybe work pays for, and it's kept uh, in a certain way. Some people do this with laptops, that uh, it's maintained by, you know, your IT department with certain security uh, and then something else for entertainment. We haven't necessarily done that with our phones and maybe we should be.
0: Should I get rid of TikTok from my phone? <laughs>
8: so the question is, how much sensitive information
0: are you going to report it I have the most, most the- incredible recipe for spaghetti <laughs> pie and I don't want it out there.
8: <laughs> exactly. This is your future here. You've got to make sure those dinner parties are secure. Um, But for most of us, it's not necessarily that TikTok is in a much different state than other social media applications. In studies that we've done, there are a few cases where some things have come. There have been errors the TikTok has has changed. There are some questions about even though the data is stored, so your personal information is stored on servers in the U.S., which TikTok has has declared, uh, it could still be accessed by officials from China. For most of us, that's unlikely to be a problem. There's very little that you might be doing that could be. In, in general, we want to be having these conversations about social media. So I guess the question is, if you aren't going to delete many social media applications, it's not that TikTok is necessarily a standout. Uh, you want, we want to think about what rules are governing what we track, uh, our location sharing, our profile building across many social media applications. That absolutely is something that we, we sort of need across many applications. We need to have this conversation, what's acceptable, how much monitoring we're allowing, uh, what What are the outcome for kids? This is a bigger conversation than just should you delete TikTok when you get
0: home tonight. One last question: Should Should anyone who has uh, you know, phones in the private sector who provides phones for their employees should they remove TikTok? Should they remove all social media?
8: Right. So, so my my guess is you talk to any IT professional in those companies, and they say, well, that should already be the case. Uh, the things people actually do are, are often in in in, in you know, sort of violation of what corporate policy might be. Uh, it used to be corporate might have, you know, a BlackBerry back, uh, you know, a, few, a, a decade ago that they maintain and you might have a personal phone. Now, of course, phones are expensive. We tend to have one device. We don't want to carry multiple devices. But from a security point of view, it's not great to, to have this sort of uh, environment. It is a little bit better than your laptop in that a mobile phone is a little more secure environment. Uh, certainly, if you have Apple, they have much more privacy concerns, and they're definitely moving in that direction. Uh, Android is a little bit more open from a, from a security point of view. but um, were i a company maybe dealing with a CEO level where somebody might be interested in finding out information they have, then I might want to really pay a lot more attention to the security of that device. But again, for most of us who are regular employees, uh, it's probably not a huge deal, excepting for the part uh, where people use passwords. So if you have an unsecured device in one place, potentially, uh, you know, a bad actor could use that to get access to your corporate accounts
0: as well. Richard Lachlan, Associate Professor at uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, expert on privacy and social media. Thank you for this. Sure, thanks. You take care.
1: So have you heard about AI or ChatGPT? Unsure about what it all means? Well, you're not alone. Shaliza Backus explains how it works and the impact on education.
9: We are hearing about AI or artificial intelligence more and more these days and ChatGPT has created quite the buzz. If you need a crash course on what this tool is, it's defined as a natural language processing tool driven by AI technology that allows you to have human-like conversations and much more with a chat bot. So this language model can answer questions and assist you with tasks such as composing emails, essay, and even code. So ChatGPT was created by OpenAI, and get this, Elon Musk is actually one of the founders of the company. While he is no longer involved, before leaving, he said that chat GPT is scary good and we're not far from dangerously strong AI. The rise of artificial intelligence raises a lot of questions and concerns, mainly for those in the education field. Joining me to talk more about this is Assistant Professor Leslie Wilton from the Faculty of Education at York University. How are you?
10: I'm great, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to talk about this topic.
9: It's, it's a burning topic for so many people. And right off the bat, have you as a professor seen an increase in chat GPT's use? And if you have, how can you tell?
10: Uh, that's a great question. I've seen a lot of interest in uh, chat GPT from educators. I follow a lot of people on Twitter. And I think that I'm seeing more and more people talking about what, what do we do about this? I think that there will be an increase in it, although many times when I've gone to use it, it's been too busy. <laughs> and that's really a challenge too. In, in my course, we look at ChatGPT and think about how it could be used and what it could be used for and what makes it work. What does it do in terms of data collection? What biases might be found in there? Um, you know, what are the security risks? So we really look at it critically. I've heard of other educators who are using ChatGPT to write lesson plans and then have their students go through the lesson plan and think critically about what it proposed. It's not a perfect model. It's it's not a person and it it makes mistakes. It's got information from a closed data set. So on the one hand, you've got a closed data set that may not give you as much misinformation about particular groups. But on the other hand, we have to worry about how is the information being controlled. So that's a long answer to, is, is it being used uh, from what I'm reading on, on Twitter from my colleagues and other educators? A lot of people are interested in integrating it into teaching because our students will need to know about it mm-hmm. and uh,
9: it's better for them to learn about it. Well, it's interesting that you say that because, I mean, on the student side, I'm sure there are a lot of people using it as well. And, you know, when I was going through university, it was like, do not plagiarize. And while technically CHAT GPT isn't exactly plagiarism, it is essentially doing the work for the students. So how do you think this affects the quality of learning?
10: Oh, I, I think it's concerning because I think it can be plagiarizing. If chat GPT is returning information from its dataset that may have been gathered on the internet that was written by somebody else, then that is plagiarizing. I've heard of institutions that have banned the use of ChatGPT. GPT. I'm not sure how that could be monitored. I've heard of people that have written programs. There was a U of T student, I believe wrote a program to detect plagiarism and they, they're not perfect, those systems. I think, you know, there's always been a risk of plagiarism And I think it's more important for us to educate our students on AI literacies. Uh, Those AI literacies are really important for our students to understand where is this information coming from? Is it correct? Because ChatGPT has been known to return information that's incorrect. And then cite it properly. It's a tool. We should be teaching our students how to
9: use that tool and how to understand it. Mm, I like that. I like that a lot. And you know, the workload, it does tend to pile up for a lot of students. And sometimes, sometimes you're just looking for that shortcut. And that is also what ChatGPT can offer for a lot of students. So how, you kind of mentioned this already, but how would you encourage students to do their work organically?
10: I think ChatGPT offers us the opportunity to think critically about the information that it's providing to us. So go ahead and ask GPT to answer a question like, you know what is artificial intelligence and then look at that answer and think about how does does that make sense is it cited is it cited correctly because sometimes chat gpt will return citations that that don't actually exist for most people that are teaching they've already provided resources so i've already provided in my course for example resources that explain what artificial intelligence is. And so I've provided those. So why not take the definitions that I've provided in the course and then compare them to what chat GPT is providing and think about that critically too. I think the learning would be deepened by that process.
9: That's interesting. So I think that there is good to this that can come out of it if it's used (laughs) properly is basically what you're saying.
10: Yes, I think we just have to learn to use the tool properly because I don't think banning it or telling our students not to use it, it is going to work.
9: Okay. Yeah. And obviously this is going to develop so much more and the way AI and artificial intelligence works in the next couple of years is going to look very different than it does now. So what do you think that the future of education looks like with AI developing more and more?
10: Yeah, that's a great
9: question. And <laughs> when I think about often,
10: a lot of us have been chatting about this as well. Do we consider it to be a disruptive technology? I think it could be. I think it's disruptive because it forces us as educators to think about how to integrate the technology into our teaching and into our students' learning. And that's the disruptive part, that it provides us with new ways of doing things. But that's the thing. The technology is changing all the time. We have to learn about it. The most difficult thing is not every educator has a technical background. In terms of AI literacy, We need AI literacy to help us understand what these tools mean, what they mean to our students, what are the biases, what are the ethics involved, that kind of thing. And educators are busy people. They work hard. And so to learn about these technologies is a challenge. But I think We'll develop our AI literacies. I just think that it's important for us to have an
9: an opportunity to develop those literacies about artificial intelligence. Yes, 100%. And I feel like there are so many more questions that people have, but those are probably only questions that can be answered with time. All I think we can say right now is that doing schoolwork and even work for educators is going to look very different over the next few years. Yes, I agree. I agree with that. Dr. Leslie Wilton from the Faculty of Education at York University, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. If you missed any part of the feed, please
1: go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.